<laughs> Speaking of background recordings, whenever Eddie Van Halen slash Pastor Ben is in the studio, you hit record. On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, you ever wonder why so many guys walk around looking like zombies? Well, we'll explain it to you. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions, and that drives us crazy. But hey, that's the nature of not being in charge. And what's so bad about talking to a pretty girl? Nothing. But if she's trying to stab you to death and eat you, maybe go find something else to do. It's episode 77. Turn it up! You think? Well, I tripped over my tongue on that one. Let's <laughs> talk about pretty girls, and all of a sudden I just bleh, 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 bleh. Oh, episode 77 is dedicated to somebody who I'm willing to assume was a pretty girl, but I don't know. We're not told. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, because today we're talking Exodus, uh, she sees Moses, clearly a Hebrew baby, and she says, oh, my dad is trying to kill these kids. Screw that. I'm going to adopt him. <laughs> Shout out. Talk about civil disobedience. Yes. Like, in so... State-sponsored or state-mandated genocide was the policy of the land, and she sees this kid that her dad is actively trying to kill, and she's like, "I'm gonna go ahead and raise him, and I will pay the wages." Of the- I just love it. Yes, I love it. She was great. She was great. Without her doing what she did, then the world would have been completely different, and the gospel narrative arc would have been interrupted. So, shout out to Pharaoh's daughter. I know she's not listening to this. I hope that somehow she wound up having faith in. Uh, the Hebrews God so that I can meet her someday in heaven because I want to give her a fat high five and tell her thank you. So Legit. There you go. Hey guys, listen, uh, give us five stars on a review if you think we earn it throughout this episode. That helps push it out through the owl go rhythm and in the meantime, let's get into some wisdom. Today is going to be Proverbs 5 verses 3 through 5. Some uh, salacious material. This one's going to be um, a little bit above PG-13. I'm not going to say rated R, but this is some mature subject matter. And by the way, it's going to be for the next couple of months on Hungry for Wisdom because Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 be about undiscerning ladies. Mm. Mm. Got to be careful of the female ladies, gentlemen. So, <laughs> these days the male ladies too. Those will get you. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> hey, you know, one good thing though about the transgender movement is that it makes it a lot easier for guys to keep control of their eyes because you really don't know if you're checking out a dude these days. So there's more motivation for you guys if you needed it. Shoulders and above. Proverbs 5, verses 3 through 5 says this. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol, meaning the grave, the place of the dead. Interesting stuff, man. Okay, here's a question. Why does Solomon connect adultery with speech? Why not with scandalous clothing or Tinder or, you know, well, I guess, you know, that was context specific, but I I think it's called Ashley Madison. Is that the, uh, the website where you go and like, you can find somebody to have an affair with? It's like only for people who are seeking out affairs. I probably shouldn't have just said that to people because that just plants the idea. In their no, they head. just got hacked, actually. But and did they? Oh yeah. Good. By the way, again, shout out like to hackers because <laughs> they exposed it. It's like, oh, maybe we should not be messing around with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Letting the wolves wipe themselves out. I dig it. All right. But Solomon here says it's all about her words. He focuses on her words, man. And I think it's because adultery usually starts with the social interaction. 
you know now of course sex is a certain type of interaction in itself right it might be you might even say in in a lot of contexts like we could say that's the the highest and most intense form of interaction in a lot of ways but there's there is an interactive element to a sexual relationship that usually starts with some kind of conversation. There's a reason that we call it intercourse, right? Because there are two, the courses of two people are interacting. The word intercourse actually used to just mean conversation. If you read something written between the 1600s and the 1800s, it just meant to relate to somebody, which I found out the hard way, by the way, because I was reading The Secret Life of Prayer by David McIntyre, who was a, a Puritan, and he was talking about intercourse with God meaning just conversation and it really threw me off there for a minute because I was like you know 23 when I read that and I was not mature enough to handle that so I was snickering to myself and then I grew up a little bit but it's uh it used to mean conversation now it's it has come to mean it's come to be a euphemism for sex but it's a darn accurate euphemism you know so what Solomon's saying here is watch your interactions with women first Timothy 5 2 it says treat Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Watch those interactions, fellas. You can enjoy conversations, but man, they cut both ways. There's a point where a a woman's speech comes into conflict with a father's instructions for wisdom. So when that happens, choose in advance. You're going to go dad's way, right? Choose life. Because when you're in the moment, you're going to make the wrong decision. So you got to decide beforehand. And we've said this many times on this show. So look at how this plays out. She draws her victims towards excitement and delight, but then there's a switch that you don't see coming. Her lips drip with honey, but then it becomes bitter as wormwood. What looks sweet ends up tasting bitter and makes you puke. It says that her speech is smoother than oil. And actually, let me dig in on that for a second, because that doesn't come across very well in English. What, when it says her speech... What, the, the word actually is palate in Hebrew. It, it refers to the inside of the mouth. So it's giving us this image of the inside of her mouth. And there's kind of a double entendre here. It's her speech, but it's also kind of referring to a kiss, right? So you've got her lips and her speech, also kind of your desire to kiss her, right? It seems sweet. It seems smooth. In the end, the smooth inside of her mouth, whichever uh, reference you take that to be thinking of at the time, it ends up being sharp as a double-edged sword now literally <laughs> ben's breaking a sweat over here he's like you need to get home don't you that- <laughs> hey solomon no. doesn't shy away from life man so literally where it says that it, it turns into a double-edged sword it, it says like a sword of mouths that's what the hebrew says isn't that interesting like yeah. a sword of mouths gosh i love hebrew I, I just love this imagery her mouth is a sword which devours you it eats you Isaiah 1 verse uh, 20, for example, it talks about, you know, being devoured by the sword. This is the, the Hebrew imagery here. So on and on it goes. She promises fun, but you get misery. She promises excitement, but you get shame. And she promises regret. And and I'm sorry, she promises. Wow. I can't read. Sorry about that. So there's all these contrasts. I'm just going to skip it. All right. She promises kisses and, you know, you get sliced and eaten to death and blah, blah, blah. Sweetness is actually bitter and smoothness is sharp. So welcome to the world of the seductress. You can't even talk about it because it's so twisted. So, of course, in the end, verse five, her feet go down to death and her steps take hold of Sheol, of the, the place of the dead, of the grave. So if you can suck yourself out of her tractor beam for a second, take a step back and see which direction she's actually walking then you look further down that road and what you're going to see is the walking dead you're just going to see like the the place of 
the, the place that, that every instinct inside of you is trying to avoid, and yet somehow your fleshly desires are trying to push you right towards it because you've got conflicting desires. So choose which one you're going to listen to. Choose life. Now, if you're wise enough to have some foresight, you're going to see yourself down that road in the future, walking like a zombie who's had all of the life sucked out of you. As he'll say in chapter seven, I believe it is, you will, uh, your strength will be used up and you will have scattered your streams abroad, right? So remember, death is a non-repeatable event for everybody except Lazarus, I think. But once you die, it's over. It only takes one time. It takes one sin in this area to change the course of your life so run fellas run and ladies all this applies to you just switch the genders that i'm talking about and all of these these apply to you also now that's there, are, a, there are certainly guys that are smooth talkers as well right totally yeah yeah it's it yeah but i think and i'm, I'm kind of going off on a on a rabbit trail here but i i, I think that if men controlled themselves a hundred percent of the time then those society the societal problems would darn near eliminate themselves because the reason that men are the smooth talkers is because they're chasing adultery which solomon is warning yep. us away from right yep. so yeah ladies you got to look out for all the same stuff and the smooth talking yeah. guy is is a stereotype for a reason because he is yeah. dangerous yeah starts with the men yeah and the and the command the command there right is to yeah be self-disciplined yep right yep absolutely so that's a lot of scary stuff that i just laid out there and i don't want to make that danger look less than it is but let me talk about the redemption here for a second, because I said that death is a non-repeatable event. And if you have committed adultery, and look, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of guys that are in this situation. You've committed adultery, fornication. There's the whole porn world, which which is that it, its own kind of of um, replication of this sin, and it just the the ick just sticks with you. So, what's God's perspective on this? So, I just want to take a second here. And hopefully help you realize how great this gospel is that God has provided for sinners after we have done these things. When Jesus was on the cross, he knew exactly how bad the sin was that he was dying for. Amen. He didn't black out certain categories. It's not like he, you know, he, he, he's like, you know, like the blood of Christ was raining down and covering the sins of all of believing mankind for all past, present, and future. And your most shameful and destructive sins were not included because they were under some kind of umbrella that didn't get covered by the blood of Christ. That is not the case. He knew what he was dying for, and he knew what sin he was taking on himself. And this is exactly what he made provision for. In fact, the grossness of that sin that is shaming you right now as you're thinking about it, that is exactly the driving force behind his eternally overwhelming response to it. Like the seriousness of this sin, I don't want to understate it, because that is why he went to such lengths to deal with it. That's why he became a human. That's why he struggled through a perfect life. That's why he gave himself up to die like he did. It's because he gets it. He understands yeah. the seriousness of this sin, and he's willing to forgive it. And, by the way, not for nothing, it, it worked, right? So I don't want you to think, oh, okay, my sin's not a big deal because God is nice and God is forgiving. No, don't do away with the seriousness of what Solomon says about sexual sin. Instead, think in terms of 1 Timothy 1. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and Pastor, Dun Pastor Dustin and the Bearded Beaver, Pastor Ben, say amen. amen. Now, 
We're going to run a quick uh, segment of songs of particular awesomeness. I enjoy doing this segment. And today's song of particular awesomeness is actually not a song of particular awesomeness. I the, the awesomeness in this particular song that I want to shout out is because of the heart condition behind it. But I want to bring up an interesting point. And Ben, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever said this. I'm confident I've never said this to you. So maybe you'll have a different take on it and be able to sharpen my thinking a little bit here. This is from the song Only Jesus by Casting Crowns. Right? Now, the, uh, the chorus goes like this. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. And then the song is along those those lines. Now, I love the heart condition behind this song, right? I think it goes too far, and I think it's unbiblical at, at that point. And I don't think they mm. saw that coming. I think they, uh, they they missed a couple of biblical principles about legacy and about um, Ebenezer Stones and setting up memories and passing things down to your children and so on. And I don't think that the members of Casting Crowns or Mark, whatever his name is, that probably wrote this thing, I don't think they would deny anything that I'm saying. I think that in the, in the fervor of, of doxological, missional sacrifice and being willing to give up everything, which I, I believe about these guys, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that they, they skipped over the good offerings of a legacy that I think they would probably affirm otherwise. So I bring this up to say, let's be doctrinally careful about our music. And just because somebody is doctrinally sloppy doesn't mean that they're fake Christians or heretics or anything like that. Yeah. These guys, I, I don't trust all, all uh, you know, Christian artists. I think some of these guys that are singing, I'm just like, dude, that is so vanilla. You don't mean a word of what you're saying. You're just cranking out a product so that the industry can reward you financially and, and uh, reputation-wise for it. And it sounds like every other piece of garbage on the radio. When I listen to the Casting Crowns, it's not my particular style. Like, I don't, I don't know that I, I enjoy that style a whole lot. But these guys, there's something genuine about it. Like, these guys went to North Korea and shared the gospel on stage when they weren't supposed to. Like, I'm, I appreciate that. Okay, dude. <laughs> you know what All I'm right. saying? Yeah. So, it, actually, that, that was cool. I heard one story about when they, when they were there. And they were told, like, look, you can't evangelize in public. You can sing your song and do whatever. But then the piano player was warming up, and he played Amazing Grace, just instrumental. And one of the guards said, one of the people that's there to chaperone him, because when you're in North Korea, you're chaperoned all the time. And they said, hey, I remember that song from when I was a kid. Somehow Amazing Grace made it into this guy's childhood in North Korea. So anyway, then they got to talk about the song because the guard opened the conversation. And so, you know, bada boom. (laughs) So then they get up there and they sing their, they sing their lyrics and get to say their stuff. And they were under all kinds of strict parameters, but that's, that's solid work. I appreciate that. That being said, if you're singing along to this song, and your heart is fully engaged while you're listening to it on the radio. I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. Great sentiment. I think it goes further than the Bible does. Yeah. Because how much would we rather leave a godly legacy and yeah. continue the and, and and be remembered by our progeny for the work that we did in our generation, right? Like we read missionary biographies and things like that. And these are good and God honoring things. Yeah. So anyway, I all that to say. High five, guys, for for uh, loving Jesus so much. I can't sing along with that one, yeah. but I'm okay with that. Yeah, and I think I think in in some respects, our legacy is attached. Hopefully, our legacy will be attached to the gospel. Yep. Yeah, and so how we conduct ourselves, how we conduct our marriages, hopefully, how we conduct our lives would be something that not only goes hand in hand with the gospel, but essentially preaches the gospel. That's what. So, do I want a legacy? Yes, I do. Now, what? But I, I, the 
even to go a little bit further, some folks will sacrifice a whole lot just to quote do the gospel. And 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 I and I'm do the gospel. And 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 there you know there are even stories of of very famous pastors whose marriages were not awesome. Mm-hmm. And and they did it all because and, and part of the reason why their marriages probably weren't awesome is because they spent so much time away from the home. Oh, John Wesley would have gotten yeah. disciplined out of grace and truth. Yeah. So I think that's exactly the person I was thinking right. about. Yeah, because you mean, what was his his marriage was thought of as a 10, 10 years war or something like that. I mean, his uh, and, and so sad. And to the and, which is really sad because John Wesley did so much yep. in the sense in in the sense of recovering a personal conviction versus just kind of some kind of state religion kind of a thing for for England, but yeah, I mean, he, his wife's, um, his wife's, uh, death didn't even, he didn't even get news about that for like a couple days. Did you ever see the last letter he wrote to her? It it ended with something like words will never be able to capture the pain that you have caused me by getting in the way of my ministry. Just gentlemen, don't do that. (laughs) Don't be like that. And don't let, don't end the letter like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, he's sacrificing it all for Jesus, man, that, that can be a very dangerous thing. I mean, even in the mission field, I mean, when I'm talking with missionaries back in my former job, it was like, how is your marriage? How is your wife? Have you, have you spent time with your family? And they said, well, I've just been, I've been so focused on ministry. I said, okay, stop. I'm going to, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna send you some I'm sending you some money. Go spend some time away with your wife or with your kids. Take your family. Go do go and don't be around. Don't be around a pulpit. Don't be around a you know just just go be with your family for a while. Right? Yeah, when when the IMB pulls their uh, missionaries together every couple of years and they have these conferences, one of the things that they have there is a whole lot of marriage counselors. Absolutely, because they know this is a problem. Yes, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know. It's that's uh that's the kind of thing where it's like I think you've missed you've uh, misdefined, ill-defined, whatever. I, I think you have gotten the wrong definition of what the mission actually is in some way. Yeah. When you're in Wesley territory, he wrote a letter to uh to his wife one time saying that uh when they have kids and they had a lot of them, he said, uh, you know that orphanage we started? Our kids are going to have to be raised in the orphanage because I'm I'm going to be gone preaching all the time. That sucks. Yeah, swing and a miss, dude. Like way because he was serving God. It's like, yeah, eh, God gives you kids, man. Well, and how many pastors do we know whose children, you know, essentially, or even children of pastors who who have such a foul taste in their mouth? Yeah, because Jesus, church. Jesus is the guy that took my dad away. Exactly. Yep. Oh, don't want that at all. Yeah. Right. Anyway, <sighs> legacy good. Jesus good. Jesus good. Jesus, gospel is awesome. This All is, right, that's the level of discourse we've devolved to on this. <laughs> on this Ugh, Jesus, good. Jesus, good. All right, so we are going to go to our this isn't that. Probably I think. more valuable than half the other stuff we yeah, said. Probably. So um, we're gonna we're gonna go into some questions that you may have for us, and actually, we're gonna get into some unanswered questions about Exodus so far for those of us who are part of Grace and Truth. Dude, um, we've got a DM on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No way. I'm joking. I really oh, don't actually. Well, if you would like to interrupt the podcast by issuing a question to Dustin, you can sign up for Twitter. Elon Musk would appreciate that. And you can send a DM, a direct message to at GT Micropastor, all one word. Or you can send an email to office at graceandtruthcommunity.com. Just call us. Look. Are we are we still doing this thing? I don't know. Oh man. Can we can we just like I don't know, make a motion? How does this work? 
Do we have to do Robert's Rules of Order on the podcast? I, I move. Can I get a second? I move. Hey, 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 hey wait a minute. We're not Southern Baptists, so we don't have to go by Robert's Rules of Order. Actually, yeah. uh, we threw that out a long time ago. <laughs> before before there was any ever any drama with the Southern Baptist Convention. One yes. year, your predecessor, the illustrious Pastor Kevin Reese, uh, his birthday present was for, uh, I, I said, hey, you ready for your birthday present? He said, yeah, or a Christmas present. I said, you ready for your Christmas present? He said, yeah. I said, hop in the truck. We go back to my house. We get a burn barrel, and we put the book of Robert's Rules of Order in the burn barrel because business meetings were just horrible, right? And so we put the book in there, and we lit it on fire, and that was his Christmas present. And the pictures of him, I'd never seen him smile so big in his life. Did, did I ever tell you that, that my previous my previous youth group, not from way back in the day, when I was like you know, 14, 15, 16, 17? Is this the camp thing? We ran all of our business meetings with Robert's Rules of Order. In the youth? In the youth. Oh, yeah. I learned how to make motions. I know. I learned how to do amendments. I learned how to table things. All of that stuff. In fact, and, and yeah, we did have a, we had a week-long camp where we learned Robert's Rules of Order. It wasn't just that. You know, shout out to anybody who might possibly be listening from, you know, from Christian Endeavor days or anything like that. No, they're but, not oh listening because they died of boredom yeah. that week. <laughs> but, You're the only one that's left. Nah, well, there were some good things that came out of that. But yeah, we were, man, we had, we had our systems. So can we be done with Twitter? Should we, should we give it a couple of weeks? I mean, we've only given it a little while. Should we give yeah. it a couple of weeks or should we be done? What do you want to do? Let, tell you what, I'm, I, you know, for some reason, I feel like not wanting to give up on it just yet. Okay. You want to, you want to contemplate. That. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see if actually anybody does DM us a question. If not, yeah, we can nuke it. Okay, Yohanan, no problem. All right, dude. <laughs> so <laughs> let us get into questions that are unanswered from the book of Exodus, in particular from this last week or so. Yeah, we've been in Exodus messages. three whole weeks now. How about that? Crazy. Okay, so here's some questions we do have, or maybe some things that weren't, you know, I mean, this is the thing, you know this far better than I do. There are certain trails that you would love to go down when you're preaching a sermon, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not, just not going to be... You, that would make the sermon like twelve hours long. And as much as we would love, I'd be fine with it. Yeah, as much as as much as I personally would love it, as long as I had a snack, and then we'd probably be fine, right? So we could do communion halfway through. But the the other thing is that um, in narrative, there are a lot of questions come up that the authors just don't answer a lot of times. Yeah. They don't care. They're on a different subject, which is why we don't chase all these rabbit trails in the sermon. Is because it's not conducive to making disciples and getting the author's point across. But yeah. they are some interesting questions. So, question number one. Here's a question. Why why didn't the Hebrew men rebel when Pharaoh started killing their babies? Dude, your guess is as good as mine, man. I don't know. Like if if a government official showed up at my door and said, Hey, that baby that was just born in your house, uh, can I hold him for a second so I can take him away and kill him? It would how is there not a, Yeah. I don't know. My own my only possible possible explanation for this is that the order was never actually carried out or was only carried out in a very limited degree and it didn't last very long. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I do wonder if, and I, and, and I don't know if you have something or someone that is just so broken by slavery, by all these other things, with, you know, whether or not they feel even helpless to, uh, to, to defend themselves against that you know i mean because because there are you know there are whole people that like you give freedom and they don't even know what to do with it because they've lived under such an oppressive rule you know like you think of our 
are of, of folks that are that are living in North Korea right now. Why 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 don't they, you know, just overthrow the government? I mean, they probably the, the, every soldier probably only has two bullets to his name anyway. So why don't you just go after them, right? Well, well, and in their situation, there's yeah. information flow that's you know they. From what I understand from North Korea, they really do think that the supreme leader is their deliverer. Yeah. They think he's – whatever bite of food they do get, it's coming from him, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's that's just a, a mind trick there. But yeah. I, I could see what you're saying maybe on an individual level if somebody was so broken. But, I mean, when you're talking about 3 million people, which is the estimate, because we know it was – what was the number? 550,300 men, I think it was. So we estimate – or no, 650,300 yeah, anyway, it was we're talking about maybe 3 million people, yeah. right? That's that's hard for me to swallow. So anyway, I'm thinking maybe maybe it didn't last that long. We know it lasted at least 3 months because Moses was 3 months old mm-hmm. when when uh well, actually maybe not because if he was already born, I eh, know the way the the way the text lays that out, the decree was given, then Moses was born, and then when he was 3 months old, they put him in the water. Floated him down to Pharaoh's daughter. Shout out because she was awesome. Uh, yeah, I maybe maybe if it only lasted three months, it's possible. Well, maybe that comes to even to the to the question of why why wasn't Aaron at risk? You know, from this same order, right? Because maybe it didn't last that long. Yeah, or maybe maybe Aaron was because I heard, and I don't know. I don't actually know where this is at in Exodus, but Aaron was three years older than Moses. And so if the order was only for babies that were just born or something like that, then maybe yeah. Aaron was exempted from it the same way Miriam was. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Um, now, how about, uh, go ahead. Interestingly, in the book of Jasher, it says that um, uh, Aaron was born in that time as well. And so it would have been a long standing order, and Aaron and Moses somehow both made it through. Now, Jasher is ancient history. It's an ancient history book, and it's a good one, but it's not something that's considered reliable in all the details. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of weight on that. The Bible does cite Jasher like three times, I think in Joshua, 2 Samuel, and something in, what is it, 2 Timothy? Um, it says, hey, all of this stuff is written in the book of Jasher. So it, it is, it is a, a culturally significant book of history, but it also mm-hmm. says that Moses's mom was 126 years old when he was born. So I'm not going to go ahead and put a whole lot of stock in all the details of, of that, but that is the only written explanation that's out there that I can find is just, yeah, they hid a lot of kids and yeah. Moses was one of them. So it's interesting because you know, you, you mentioned, you know, just how much of a genocidal maniac, right? Pharaoh is mm-hmm. right. Just want to wipe out all of these, these baby boys. Right. But how, how many baby boys do you really think, were wiped out as a result of Pharaoh's orders. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have no way of knowing, right? The the only the only thing there that I think maybe not a whole lot. The only thing that makes me think that is that there's no gap in in um, age. Like there, there's no there's no demographic missing in the Exodus, mm. right? And you would expect that if a whole lot of babies got murdered, there would be a gap of men of a certain age, Moses's age, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Right. Okay. So, and it's, it's never, it's never mentioned again or anything like that. So it seems to me not very widespread since, well, okay, this is weird. This is actually really weird. Maybe one of the weirdest things I've ever said on this show. Um, since I'm mentioning the book of Jasher, it says that, um, for a long time. So the, 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 the killing of the babies or the, the Egyptians seeking to kill the babies lasted for a long, long time, like enough for kids to become adults. Okay. And so what moms would do, Hebrew moms, 
is they would go out to the field, have a baby, leave the baby in the field, and then go back home. And then God made sure that the baby boys, their um, their hair would grow long enough to cover them and keep them warm. And then he would bring them into the ground and they would stay in a cocoon until they were adults. And then when they were adults, the ground would open up and, quote, vomit them out. And they would walk back into their village as young men so that they were exempted from the order to be killed. Like I said, Jasher might not be the most dependable, literal chronological account of things <laughs> yeah man yeah bro that's somebody was smoking that burning bush <laughs> <laughs> whoa okay all right so so i don't um, know is the answer yeah okay man i'm still digesting the whole hair growing yeah it's weird so i mean here's yeah. the thing but like when you for the sake of teaching people and making disciples yeah. when you interact with this kind of information you got to understand this is what hebrew history is like they were they were writing that in order to make a point, in order to say God made provision for this kind of stuff, and it's debatable how literal they thought this actually was. Now, if I saw that in the Bible, I'd be like, hey, that's the inspired word of God. There is no claim anywhere that Jasher is the inspired word of God. So it's like the author is doing something different here, and we're supposed to handle it in you know in its own terms in literary context. So we shouldn't yeah. be too thrown off by it. But the reason that we're even going down this pathway you know, on this show is because I, I want to... I want us, dear listener, I want us, your pastors, to show you by example, it's okay to ask these questions and to not have an answer to every question. Yeah. Right? So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Another great question. How long did this enslavement of Israel actually last? Mm, We were discussing this one, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Well, mm. okay, so it was 430 years from the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 until the Exodus. Okay. 430 years. So where all this is going is I don't have an exact number for this, but if you think it through 430, uh, and that is, that's, you know, told to us in Galatians three, uh, or yeah, three or four must be four Galatians. Um, so that kicked off, you know, the, the clock ticking, and then it was 25 years until Isaac was born, and then he was X number of years old when Jacob was born, and he was X number of years old when Joseph was born, and then Joseph goes down to Egypt, is there for a whole long time. He's in jail for like 4,200 years or something crazy like that. And then uh, the rest of his brothers and Jacob, who's renamed Israel, they, they all come down to Egypt, and they're there for a long time. And so you could actually count those years if you look at oh okay jacob was this old when joseph was born and and joseph was this old when his kids were born and then everybody came down to egypt you could probably calculate the exact year that they went down there and the time elapsed between genesis 12 and the promise to abraham and them getting to egypt but then in exodus 1 it just says and a pharaoh arose that didn't remember joseph so there's a gap in there of time that we're not actually told um and we don't know now we do know that there's some really weird phrasing here in Exodus 1 that is not entirely clear on if we're talking about the same Pharaoh or a different Pharaoh. So, um, let's see. Verse 8, Exodus 1, 8. There arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people have become uh, too many for us. Um, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. If war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so he he said that, right? 
But back in verse 6, Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and exceedingly great, multiplied and grew strong so that the land was filled with them. And so we don't know, first off, like I said, we don't know the intervening time between verses 6 through 7 and verse 8. There's a break there. But then when you get the Pharaoh that says, you know, hey, let's set taskmasters over them and stuff. Then they build all of these cities, and then there's all of these, um, you know, decrees that are given and stuff like that. And when you add all these events up, it just seems like it's too much time to have been happening within one administration, right? Um, because it, when it, when you read it, it reads like the Pharaoh that, that put Moses out was the same Pharaoh, or the, the, the Pharaoh that put Moses out and and, uh, you know, was in charge in the Exodus and all of that kind of stuff was the same one that gave all of those orders. But that's just, that's too much time for one Pharaoh because Moses was 40 years old when he left Egypt and 80 years old when he came back and did the whole Exodus thing. So, you know, you're talking about a Pharaoh that would have been ruling since before he was born. That's just too much time. So somewhere in there, there seems to have been some kind of transition of power and we don't know where. So that's the answer. We don't know how long the enslavement actually lasts, but we do know that they were not enslaved for 400 years, okay? which is kind of what you, you typically hear. Like, oh yeah, the enslavement lasted 400 years. No, it didn't. It might've been 150. It might've been 215. It might've been 40 years. I think that's a bit low, but uh, you know, it wasn't 400. Yeah. But we do know that they lived in a land that it was not their own, which yeah. is which is critical because that's actually, I believe, Paul, part of Paul's argument in, in uh, Galatians 3. It's three. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they lived in a land that was not their own, and and that is, so Abraham was called Hebrew, which means wanderer, right? Yeah. So from the point where he gets that promise, he's he, he says, God says, I will give you everywhere, I think this is chapter 17, I will give you every plot of land that, you're, that you set your foot on. It's going to be yours, but it's going to be going down to your inheritance. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about a future promise there. Yep. And you notice when he buried Sarah, he had to buy that land from the Hittites. So he didn't already own it. So even Abraham was wandering around in a land that was not yet his own. Hebrews 11 makes this point. He was looking forward to the future promise, and then that whole time, they were living in a land that didn't actually belong to them. Yeah. 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 Okay. So changing gears just a little bit mm-hmm. now, because the last, one of the things that has been stuck, sticking out in my mind from the last couple of sermons is just how stupid Pharaoh was. I think the title of my last yeah. sermon on Facebook was Pharaoh is an idiot. Yeah. So, yeah. so here we have this, this, rightly so, negative example of foolishness, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all, all that stuff. But when it, I guess the question might be what what should Pharaoh have done then? I mean, if you if you how how would that look? What 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 should Pharaoh have done? It's a tricky question, right? We were talking about this at your boys' party a little yeah. bit because the um, so obviously he should have worshipped Yahweh, drop to your knees and say, "You are the real king. I'm not. I'll do whatever you want, God." And that would have been the right thing to do. Okay, so let's play this out. Then you let the you let your slaves go. And your whole workforce collapses and your economy is gutted. If you got 3 million Jews, or they weren't called Jews yet, 3 million Israelis or Israelites in a land of maybe 5 million people who are not Israelites, I mean, that's what, 40% yeah. of your population just gone. That's devastating to a country. And so the most powerful country in the world, in the known world at that time, would have been essentially brought down to their knees. Now, Pharaoh was in charge of taking care of his people. And before God, the rulers are responsible 
to make sure that their people are provided for to the best of their ability, right? So that would be mass starvation. You'd be talking social chaos. I mean, the entire economy would be turned over overnight. That's not really good leadership. So from a leadership perspective, what do you do? All right. You've kind of heard my idea on it. I can go down that rabbit trail here in a second, but do you have any other... any other thoughts beyond that? Because I'm about, I'm about to say something, and if you if you're thinking something different, I don't want to look really stupid because you're probably right. No, no, not at all. I I think if especially if we're talking about kind of what we had, what spoke about earlier, I think that, that that's there. I'm I'm just trying to think of would it have been even what might it have looked like had Pharaoh? This is all speculation, by the way. Again, what might it have looked like had Pharaoh just gone? Okay, you know what. This whole God of the Hebrews, like he's really the thing. And yeah. we're going to, not only am I going to bow down and worship this, but now we're going to take down all the high places, all the temples, mm. everything like that, you know, and yeah, his go people. Go straight Josiah. Yeah, go straight. You know, you know I mean, <laughs> you, you, you look at even just how Pharaoh was groomed, as it were, to be this God, man. Mm-hmm. And what kind of, what level of, of humility it would have to take to step down off of that when everything that you've been told for the la- for all of your life is that you are a god among men you are you know and now for for him to have to step off that not that it's not impossible because we also we say the same things our culture says the same things to our kids all the time yeah you know? well and it worked with Nebuchadnezzar yeah that's true who was every bit as powerful as Pharaoh was in his day yeah yeah of course he also had to go eat grass for seven years. Yeah, well, it's the cost of doing business, you know. You want <laughs> you want you want to repent and follow Christ. Uh, you're gonna have to give some stuff up. Yeah, yeah, man. So, okay, we we say all of this that with the full knowledge that it doesn't actually matter. Like, what if questions when you're dealing with the sovereignty of God? There is no what if because God did what He wanted and what He said He was going to do. So, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This option was never on the table. The reason that I think this is an interesting question is because God is very. Um, dogmatic, I guess you could say, about what he expects of his leaders. So what would godliness have looked like had Pharaoh repented? Let's say on plague three, <laughs> you know, like, all right, third plague, I get the point, Yahweh. I, you know, you're you're the man. I can't turn the Nile to blood or turn it back again. You got me. What if he had repented on plague three? Okay, so here's, here's my thought on what he could have done. What he could have done was, would be to work out something reasonable and equitable with the Hebrews and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You guys can leave and we'll even give you safe passage. We will use our military to assure you safe passage back to your promised land. Once you get there, you're on your own. You got to fight whoever's there. We're not going to do that for you, but we'll get you there. In exchange, you're going to agree to leave in three waves over the next, let's say, five years, all right? We'll start paying your guys. We'll scale up the pay. Like they, they started, you know, extra biblical history tells us they started paying them before that and then, you know, tricked them and yanked the wages away. We'll, we'll start scaling up the pay for your guys. And in, you know, a year from now, they'll be making a full wage uh, for the work that they're doing, building Pithom and Ramses, the, the store cities. And then we'll let one wave go now, another wave go in a year and a half, another wave go you know, two years after that, whatever it is, and we'll pay your guys in the meantime. So we'll guarantee you safe passage. We'll pay your guys that are here. You guys leave in three waves. And then we sign a trade agreement that we have um, each other's best commercial interest in mind from here on out. So we get a, a you know, we get a take of, we, we get a portion, a percentage of whatever uh, you guys accumulate in gross domestic product wise, right? Which would have been brilliant because if you look at the, if you look at a map, 
and you look at where, um, you know, I say brilliant, not because it was my idea, but because this has happened 50 times in history that we're aware of since then, and it's a good move. If you look at where the Palestinian Strip, the land of Canaan, you look at where that is on a map, and what you would have to do to get to Egypt or the rest of Africa from Europe or from the Middle East or let alone from Asia, you have to go through that area because if you're if you're not going to go through the Palestinian Strip, you got to go around a bunch of desert, and that's perilous. And so whoever owns, that, that's why there was always war over this chunk of land. Whoever owns that chunk of land is going to be loaded, which is, I think, why in Ezekiel 38, God says, I placed you at the center of the world, and you blew it. Because that really was the center of the world, yeah. landmass-wise. And then you've got Egypt, who obviously has the Nile, and obviously they are kind of the gatekeepers for Africa, and so they're always going to be rich, unless God sends a bunch of plagues, for example. So you've got the, the two most powerful economic players they're globally and they're in agreement with each other and they can have commerce back and forth. Both of these places are going to go through the roof. Egypt is always going to be bigger, so they don't need to worry about Canaan taking them over because there's just not enough space for them to muster that kind of army. And if they will guarantee secure trade routes, actually, so we, we used to, we're still doing it kind of, but it's sort of breaking down, right? We've, we've been on that whole train. So after World War II, the U.S. Navy said, we will secure global uh, trade routes, global shipping routes, which is how you can have an oil tanker or a tanker full of, of you know, clothing that's valuable for people or, or food and spices. And it can get across the Pacific Ocean and it's going to work safely and it's going to be cheap. And the reason is because the U.S. Navy secures all those trade routes. Well, that is what has allowed globalism or um, uh, capitalism to spread on a global... <laughs> also allowed globalism that that's what has allowed yeah. capitalism to spread globally the price of goods to go down uh, everybody can earn a living wage and and the average uh, prosperity of the the person in the world goes up egypt could have done that same thing man now i'm way in the weeds in geopolitics at this point yeah. so let me just yank back because i'm talking about stuff that nobody cares about at this point and and i'll summarize they could have let them go in an ordered fashion paid just wages to the people who were still around for a while and then um, had trade agreements and secured trade routes with them, and they would have ended up in a far better economic place uh, as a result of all of that stuff than they would if they just kept their slaves. Yeah. So I think that's what they should have done. Yeah. Because but. I have all this information. Now, I don't actually have any information. It's all just a guess. Yeah. It's a theory. But let me reiterate the point. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This was never going to happen. We're just talking specifically about the wisdom of when you decide to obey God, how, how can you do it? How can you put one foot in front of the other in a way that is, you know, well, wise, for lack of a better term? And I think there was a way to do it. And I think he should have, and I think he's, he was held responsible for not. Yeah. So there you go. So I have a question then. Mm-hmm. Totally separate. Well, this is, I don't know if this is a little bit off or not, but sometimes when we look at narrative and we think so-and-so should have done something different, you know, and it, at some point, the question, should, does it even matter? That, you know, that, does it, does it matter because that was either in the context in the context of the narrative or in the context of, of, of divine sovereignty throughout history, th- this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily what should have happened, but this is what happened. What do you think about that? Is that something that is, is going off on to the, and I'm not trying to invalidate the last like 10 minutes. Of yeah, no, podcast, no push. It's okay. But, but in, in going off on these, on these various, what ifs, mm-hmm. does that, does that help us or does that bring us into the, in, into a realm of speculation that really, you know, doesn't really matter. Doesn't profit anybody, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it matters if we're going to learn from history, right? So if somebody acted unwisely, and if we're presented with an analogous situation, Uh, how are we going to act wisely? 
That's how we learn from history. That's fair. So, no, I don't think it's important for understanding our Bibles. Yeah. But I think there's worldly wisdom to yeah. be gained from it. Well, and the, and, and I, I, the idea of, 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 of uh, recompensating, right, the idea of making right what is wrong, we, we have to do that even when we, even today when we deal with sin, mm-hmm. right? We, 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 we deal with, uh, you know, someone steals something, they need to bring it, they need to give it back. Well, if yeah. If it's damaged, then it needs to be replaced. And, We're in an agrarian yeah. society here to a large degree where we got a lot of farmers. You got hop farmers and cherry farmers and apple orchards and stuff like that. And a lot of these guys are hiring, um, you know, uh, hiring foreign labor at, in unfair, unsafe conditions. Yeah. So, let's say you're running a farm and you're hiring migrant workers and you're not treating them with dignity. And then you get saved. What should you do, right? I think we can learn some lessons from Pharaoh in that situation. Certainly, yeah. The book of James seems to also speak an awful lot of that too, right? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, good stuff. All right. (laughs) that one gets more specific. The workers in your field are having their wages withheld from them. How dare you? Yeah, so. yeah, you're right. That's a better example. Well, that's fine. That's fine. So, okay. So that is our, this is and that's. And uh, by the way, again, follow, if you follow, if you would follow us or give us a rating of five stars, if you think we earned it, um, this would, this, we would greatly appreciate it. And Jesus deserves disciples. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of grace and truth community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love him because he first loved us.